Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Rebecca King, and today we're wrapping up our series on writing from history by talking to two scholars who bridge the interdisciplinary gap. Hi, I'm Derek Hurst uh, in the History Department. And Steve Zwicker in the English Department. Professors Hurst and Zwicker have been working together, teaching and writing since the 1980s. And much of their research has focused on one historical and literary figure, Andrew Marvell. Andrew Marvell was a leading English poet of the 17th century. A leading English poet who made public almost none of his poems. They were kept in the desk drawer. They were published in print three years after his death. Some circulated in manuscript, but most of them, as far as we know, never appeared. Yeah, a very unusual thing for someone whom we think of as one of the great poets in the English canon. He was also an important member of parliament from 1659 through to his death, and he was one of the two most important polemicists uh, wrote against absolutism, against what he saw as tyranny, against what he saw as religious persecution in the later 17th century, a time which, of course, included uh, John Locke and John Milton, both of whom he knew. Yes, yeah, so one of the problems that Derek touches on, he had a public career and a career as a polemicist, and then he had this kind of unknown private career as a lyric poet. And for many, many years, people did not know how to put together into one person two such disparate spirits. And that's one of the things that we try to yeah. do in our book. There was a body of scholarship on Marvell as the politician, Marvell as the political writer, and then there was a much bigger body of scholarship on Marvell, the literary figure. And those bodies of scholarship did not meet at all. And it was our premise that this was the same person who wrote them and there ought to be some connection and indeed the connection we suggest in the book has a great deal to do with the body of Andrew Marvell. Bringing these two sides of Andrew Marvell together is no easy task. First, not only were Marvell's poems unpublished until after his death, but most are insular. That is, none of his poems are dated or contain any reference to the outside world, which scholars could use to date the works. If the poems could be dated, then they could be compared to the political writings Marvell made public to understand how the two influenced each other. A second problem arises with the fact that very little is known about Marvell's life. The documentation of his upbringing and the details of his personal life are few and far between. Much of the information we do have comes from the gossip rags of the 17th century, known as pamphlet literature. What's interesting is that these stories from the pamphlets often reinforce certain themes that echo throughout Marvell's writings. The title of Hurst and Zwicker's book, Andrew Marvell, 
orphan of the hurricane, comes from such a source as well. His father died when he, he was, was 20, 19, 19, 19 yeah, or 20. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if he was in real terms, he was an orphan. He was a pretty well-aged orphan yes. and to think of himself in, in that way. But and, he'd clearly yeah. been out of sympathy with his father for, for a while. And there's a story which was told at the time that he ran away. He came from a, a really solid Puritan clerical background and there are stories that he ran away intending to join the Jesuits and his father chased him off down to London and hauled him back protesting etc etc so that may or may not be true but that was certainly a story that was being told by the time of Marvel's actually before Marvel's death yes and there are in the pamphlet literature little bits and pieces that come up about Marvel and they're odd pieces and it kind of helps you think about what this figure was like in the world. So there are all kinds of dimensions to that. There's the theoretical dimension, there's the textual dimension. There's the fact that there are, as Steve said, little bits and pieces in the world out there which have to do with Andrew Marvell, which may or may not be, be true. true. <laughs> uh, but one powerful theme in those bits and pieces out there was the argument that he was castrated. Marvell attracted a lot of attention, both favorable amongst tolerationists, people we would go on to call liberals, Whigs, and a lot of vilification from conservative clergymen and their supporters. And what the clergyman reveled in was the claim that Marvell was in some way a eunuch himself. And one of his poems is upon a eunuch, a poet. And that wasn't a poem that circulated. So there's some plausibility uh, Strange in, in the case. But that then makes, but that then makes the, the whole question of the role of ideology, the ideology of patriarchy, the circumstance of the centrality of the family to, to the way in which 17th century English people thought about their political and social structures, a really kind of pressing one biographically for Marvell. As Professor Hurst just mentioned, the family, and specifically the patriarch, were central to the 17th century English politics and social life. During this time, questions of succession arose when King Charles I of England declared the divine rights of the monarchy and became a tyrant, dissolving Parliament to rule as he pleased. This led to a war between the armies of the King and the Parliaments of England and Scotland, which Charles I lost, and he was subsequently arrested and executed making way for the Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell, who ruled for several years before the monarchy was re-established. Many of Marvell's political writings focused on the figure of the patriarch and his role in the state for obvious reasons during these turbulent times. Marvell, too, made his livelihood by attaching himself to powerful male figures who functioned as his patrons, like Lord General Thomas Fairfax, who is mentioned in the title of one of Marvell's most famous poems, Upon Appleton House to My Lord Fairfax. Marvell often tutored the children of his patrons, though he never had a family or children of his own, which was unusual for a man in this time period. Whether he had the capability to have a family or not, Professors Hurst and Zwicker discovered a thread that runs through all of Marvell's works about the body and the role of the father or patriarch. 
imaginatively, imaginatively maybe, rather yes. than biographically. Okay. Yeah, imaginatively, in terms of his imagined life, because he certainly was not possessed of a reproductive career himself. Whether he was possessed of reproductive capacity, contemporaries doubt it. We don't know. But it makes the poems resonate in, uh, yeah. in surprising ways. And one of the things we explore in the book is the way in which the body seems important to lots of different kinds yeah. of writing. And so when you think about the body in its polemical life, how the body was made use of and how it was used to slander and scandalize, but also how important the body is in the lyric poems and in other kinds of writing. It sort of allows us to see a connection between what Derek refers to as an ideology and the actual physical circumstance of his body. And we're telling a story about Marvell as a writer, Marvell in the world, but we're not exactly telling a biographical story. We're telling a story about the ways in which people imagine their lives and how the pressure of that imagination then emerges in texts that they write. But the oddity of the imagined life of the body that Marvell told himself is what allows us to bring yeah, the, the, the two halves of the yeah. career, the political and the literary, they were, of course, the work of the same real material body, but the same imagination of an excluded and maybe incapable body runs through all the work and all the genres. Because there is so little known or recorded about Marvell's life, Scholars today have to rely on the texts that he wrote, and that his contemporaries wrote, and from them they can extrapolate about the life. Given these circumstances, how do professors Hurst and Zwicker approach the topic of fidelity to the facts, when there are so few? This question actually sparked a sort of debate between the two, and their positions as an English scholar and a historian might actually surprise you. I feel a responsibility toward the writings. Toward the life, it's a more difficult thing to actually put your hands on that. But we've got texts in front of us, and I feel that we have a responsibility to be as imaginative and responsive to the text as possible. Marvell was really interested in the idea of a life and maybe his life as a topic and he looked at it from all kinds of different positions and in different media. He had lots of paintings done of himself which is a surprising number for somebody of his uh, relatively humble. Yeah. So, I mean, he was an MP but there is contemporary testimony of the fact that he was not very well off. Those paintings suggest, at the least, a real interest in representation of himself as a figure. And he's really, really interested in the poems, in imagining himself as a figure on the edge of things, on the edge of high politics. Arguably, the most famous political poem in the English language is a poem by Marvell called An Oration Ode. And the poem begins with a few lines about the poet on but, the edge. Yeah, but then that figure 
seems ambiguously situated between an author imagining himself and an author imagining an historical figure, a public man. And that's very much the motif in his biggest poem, Upon Appleton House, where, yeah. uh, where the tutor creeps in on the side on the side and then that opens the door repeatedly the gesture yeah. uh, so he thought he was an interesting issue it's clear so do you think as an historian but we don't usually think in these categories yeah. we hardly ever yeah. refer to ourselves yeah. as we're, an historian or a literary yeah. we're not interdisciplinary any longer now we're kind of transdisciplinary yeah. so do you think there's a separate responsibility to the life rather than the texts well, in Marvell's case, the texts are what overwhelmingly we have. There yeah. are material details of the life are relatively few. And so we're freer to, <laughs> as, our, as our critics would say, invent. <laughs> but no, if but we were writing about Milton, yeah. about whom there's an enormous amount known, there's a 19th century historian and literary critic who put together the life records of John Milton in several volumes, half a dozen volumes. It's just an enormous amount known. Would you feel differently about your responsibility to, quote, yeah, yeah. the person as opposed to a responsibility to the texts? I mean, I think if we were doing an exercise... Such as that, Such as with, that Milton. with Milton, it would be a wholly different yeah. exercise. It would not be as theoretically interesting because we would not have to be as yeah. second-guessing our ourselves at every step. What exactly are we doing since we don't know? No, yes. Um, yeah, I'm not sure it would actually change the exercise if you had more data. Mm -hmm. You might be tempted to kind of take a slightly easier road and just fall back on all the life records that we have. But I don't think that would be as interesting as what we did with Marvell, maybe. I guess we could flip the claim a little bit. Because we have so few life records, yeah. we have to be particularly careful to make sense of, to make coherence out yeah. of what we've got in the literary record. And maybe we could defend ourselves by saying we're actually driven by our circumstance of uh, so a relative short data, shortage yeah. of data to be as faithful as we Do can. you think that making a coherent imagination is actually an act of being responsible? Maybe lives don't have coherent imaginations. Maybe we're giving him a coherence that wasn't experienced, maybe not well, even it's, lived. It's a coherence he told himself. Now and then. It's very yeah. much in bits and pieces. Yeah, I mean, but, we've stitched it but together. But we use the bits and pieces yeah. he left us. Yes. And if he'd left us more saying other things, we would have done our best to, <laughs> to incorporate that yes, stuff yes. And, uh, and bring it in. So, yes, I mean, yeah. we are... I think that's a form of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Many thanks to professors Derek Hurst and Stephen Zwicker for taking the time to meet with me and unravel the life of Andrew Marvell. If you're interested in reading more about Marvell, check out their book, Andrew Marvell, Orphan of the Hurricane, or their anthology, The Cambridge Companion to Andrew Marvell. And Thanks to you listeners for tuning in. 
This episode concludes our series on writing from history, but we hope you'll continue the conversation by finding us on Facebook or Twitter 